Let me ask you, if you would, to please take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. As we're teaching through the Bible, we have been in, we spent a number of weeks in the earlier chapters of Jeremiah, and then we stepped out um, to go and look at the book of Habakkuk for the last three weeks, since Habakkuk came on the scene right about this time in the life of Jeremiah, and he ministered there in the um, nation of Judah to God's people. Now that we finished Habakkuk, we are picking back up in Jeremiah chapter 17, and Lord willing, we will be in chapter 18 next week. I guess I didn't need to tell you that. That's kind of how things work, isn't it? Chapter 17 today, chapter 18 next week. How many of you are old enough to remember the strange dynamic duo named Siegfried and Roy? Yeah. Well, they were Las Vegas performers for decades. They performed at the Mirage Casino in Las Vegas, and in 1996, they acquired a baby tiger that they named Montecore. And they raised Montecore and trained him to perform in their show, along with a number of other animals. And uh, uh, when they got Montecore, he was tiny, and he was cute and cuddly, and he was harmless. But uh, on October 3rd, 2003, during one of their normal performances... Um, Montecore, now a fully grown seven-year-old powerful tiger, did what tigers do. He attacked Roy, bit completely through his neck, slicing his vertebrae and severing an artery. And then he proceeded to drag Roy's limp body around the stage in front of a horrified audience. You remember that, I'm sure it made worldwide news. They had made a tragic mistake, naively or foolishly, I don't know, but they had believed that this deadly animal, with an instinct to kill, literally programmed into its DNA, was actually harmless and would never, ever hurt them. They played with danger and they lost. Whether you realize it or not, you and I face an enemy far more dangerous than that tiger every day of our lives. I'm not talking about the devil. I'm not even talking about the IRS. I'm talking about something far more sinister, far more deadly. This This invisible, intangible danger lives deep inside every one of us. And it's so powerful that it controls every thought, every emotion, every desire, every word, every action in your life. This thing is so deadly that if you don't keep it under constant control, it will destroy your life. God addresses this danger here in Jeremiah chapter 17, and that's what I want to take a few minutes today to focus on. Uh, We'll pick up just quickly here in verse 1 of chapter 17, just to set the context. But we're going to focus a little bit later, starting in verse 5. But now, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1 says this, 
God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to his wayward people. He says, the sin of Judah, now that's not a person, although it, it was, but now it's a nation. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. God's people, as we've seen over the months now, had turned away from him. God had provided them with this beautiful land. He had given them everything their hearts desired. But his people had chosen to turn their hearts away from him, and they'd become so entrenched in their evil ways that it had completely hardened their hearts. The language that God is using here when he says that their sins are written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond, those were instruments used to carve or chisel words into stone. Whatever was etched into marble or into granite was permanent. It was there for good. You couldn't just simply wipe it away. This is illustrating, God is illustrating here the hardness of their heart and their rebellion against God. God is trying to convey to them, there's nothing superficial about your sin. There's nothing temporary about what you're doing. The way that you're living, the path that you have chosen is permanently scarring your life. And if you don't return to me and seek forgiveness, it's going to stay etched in your hard heart forever. But he also says, notice this phrase that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today. He says it's engraved on the horns of your altars. It wasn't just their hearts that were deeply etched with sin. What he's saying here is their religious works even were were also bearing the marks of their rebellion. Now, I'll let you pursue this on your own just for time's sake. We can't get into it, but just briefly, if you remember way back when we were studying the building of the tabernacle and uh, the altars and so on, the main altar right at the entrance of the tabernacle courtyard, that massive altar where sacrifices for sin were made, on that altar, on each of the four corners of of that altar were horns uh, sort of chiseled out of the rock there, standing out, four horns on that altar, and it had great significance to God. It was the, the blood of the sacrifice that was sprinkled upon the horns of the altar. All of this had meaning and symbolism and significance to God. And this was a very sacred, special, holy place where God in that period of history uh, would, would accept sacrifices for the sins of mankind upon that altar and upon the horns of the altar. The horns represented power, they represented strength, and we're even told in Solomon's lifetime an example of someone who was in trouble, Uh, he had done wrong, and he was about to be put to death for it, and he ran and held on to the horns of the altar for safety. And so now what God is saying in this strange twist of words here that meant so much to them, we have to really work at it to understand the meaning of this. God is saying, this path that you've chosen, your waywardness from me has not only etched itself into your hard heart, but the picture of this is unthinkable. Their sin 
is etched into the horns of my holy altar. And he's saying, your waywardness is not only affecting your private heart, it's affecting your public worship. And folks, that's the way it always is. Still to this day, whatever we allow into our heart, however secret it may be to us, will not only eventually affect our heart and our life, it will ultimately affect our worship and our fellowship together. Do you understand, this is why I say again and again, this brick and glass and carpet and all around us, this is not the church. This is a building. We are the church. And we are no stronger than our weakest person here. And I don't mean that in any negative way. There are weeks when I'm the weakest person here. And if we don't guard our individual lives, we are bringing our junk into the church, and it will affect our fellowship, it will affect our worship. Does it bother us to come here with our heart out of place? Or do we ever even pause to think about it? Someone once asked a question that branded itself onto my soul. I've never forgotten this. He said, what bothers you more, coming to church with your hair out of place or coming to church with your heart out of place? There's no such thing as private sin. God is pointing this out here. He's saying, boy, what you're done, what you've been doing is your sin is etched upon your heart, but it's also disgracing my worship. Well, in verses 2 through 4, God reminds his people how they turned away from him and turned to idols instead, and he warns them again for the thousandth time that judgment is coming. We've looked at this over and over again. So I want us to look down to verse 5. In these following verses, God gives us a timeless, universal principle that applied not only to those people 2,600 years ago, but it applies equally as much to us today. Here's the first point I want you to see. And again, uh, I'm not great at making these points. This is just, this is just what I thought here. Uh, number one, the folly of trusting in man. We see this in verses 5 and 6. The folly of trusting in man. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Now, anytime you see that in Scripture, we need to sit up and we need to pay real close attention. This is not some person speaking. These are the words of God. Thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man. Uh Uh-oh. What? Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Now, as I said, we've already seen in Isaiah and Jeremiah that God's people had stopped trusting in him. And we've seen the numerous other things throughout these prophetic books that they have turned their trust to instead. We saw initially how they were now trusting in their wealth and their status. These people have been so blessed by God, but they had taken those blessings and they had turned them all inward. It says, They had ivory palaces. It says that they were uh, living in um, fancy homes and they had vacation homes. Did you know people had vacation homes back then? 
Um, they were living high on the hog. The problem was, as God showed us, they had gained all this excess wealth on the backs of other people. They were, they were cheating. They were embezzling. They were taking advantage of the poor. And they were getting rich by using other people. They were also trusting in idols now. They saw these other pagan nations around them. And, uh, you know, they're out there talking one day. Uh, you know, Bill is, uh, is leaning over the fence talking to his neighbor, Joe. And Joe's a pagan. And, and Bill's looking at Joe's crops going, man, that, your crops look really good this year. What's going on? He says, oh, well, it's the idol I pray to. I pray to the idol of uh, the harvest. And Bill goes, is that so? Uh, what's, what's your idol's name? He tells him, he says, uh, where can I get me one of those? And so God's people began bringing in pagan idols into their lives, praying to them instead of to God, and looking to those idols for protection. It also tells us that they had put their trust in other nations. At one point, it's, it's unimaginable, but God's people actually put their trust in Egypt. They made an alliance with Egypt, the very nation that had held them in bondage from which God freed them. They said, hey, we got a great idea. Let's go make an alliance with Egypt to protect us from Assyria and to protect us from Babylon. And God said to them at one point, why didn't you call upon me to protect you? I've already promised I would that nothing would harm you, that no nation would ever conquer you if you trust in me. And they said, nah, we're going to trust in Egypt. So this is their condition now. They've put their trust in all these other things, and now God is addressing this very abruptly, very directly through Jeremiah. Let's look at verse 5 again and add verse 6 into it this time. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Why? What's the outcome of that? Verse 6, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Here is a picture of a person who chooses not to trust in God. How is his heart going to end up? How is his life going to end up? God says he'll eventually be like a little shrub in the desert, dry and weak and frail and vulnerable, holding on for dear life. It has no hope. It has no sustenance. It has no strength. It's surrounded by the harsh elements and the bitterness of this world. Folks, that is the outcome of a heart that turns away from the Lord. Now let's be careful. Let's not look at only the outward. Because on the outside, this person's life may look enviable. You and I may look at a person like this and think, boy, they have got it all. If only I could be like them. But how often do we hear in the news about yet another Wall Street millionaire or some famous celebrity who has it all, how often do we hear and read news articles about how those people destroy their lives with drugs or alcohol 
or even suicide. They have mansions, they have fleets of cars, private planes. They have the adoration of the world, some of them, and yet they are empty on the inside. I remember years and years ago, uh, actor Richard Dreyfuss was interviewed by Barbara Walters. And towards the end of the interview, one of the questions she, she said to him was, um, you've reached the, the pinnacle of success in your career. You've achieved everything anybody could want to achieve in Hollywood. What's the one thing you don't have? And Dreyfus said, peace. Peace. Can't buy that. Can't buy it. There he was, the envy of so many people, and yet he was empty on the inside, still searching for something he'd never been able to attain. A person might have everything, but if they're apart from God, they're like that parched, dying shrub on the inside, no matter how good they look on the outside. Many years ago, in Texas, a multi-millionaire oil tycoon was, was found dead outside his enormous estate in one of his sports cars. He had put a gun to his head, and he left a note that simply read, I'm tired of trying to find ways to fill up 24 hours in a day. The bored rich. They've acquired everything. They've experienced everything. And yet there's still something missing. How powerful is that? And how foolish of us to think that we can find happiness and joy and inner peace through any other means than a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Any person without God, no matter how much they own, no matter how much they've achieved, they're eventually going to look around at all the fame, at all the possessions they've accumulated, and it's all going to look like a dry desert in their eyes. It's going to look like a barren salt land where there is no life. There's no connection with God. There's no communion with God. And when a person is in that state, their soul is empty and dry. The Bible says that is what life will ultimately look like for everyone who turns their heart away from God and puts their trust in something else. Can I just ask you before we move on to the next point? You know, there's... We're so limited in time up here. Um, I have to cut out so, so many things that I would love to say, and it's always a good discipline for me to have to do that. Um, it keeps me from running my mouth, and, and it sort of whittles everything down to, I believe, the essentials of maybe what we need to hear on a Sunday morning. But there's a danger in saying the things that I have just said and moving on without addressing this. There's a danger for us to hear what I've just said and think, well, that's not me because I'm not making these huge, big choices to depart from God. I mean, Phil, I'm sitting in a church service this morning. What more do you want? And here's the danger. 
The danger is that you and I can be sitting here this morning with a Bible in our lap, listening to the Word of God, nodding our head, and our heart can be a million miles away from God. God said this in His Word over and over again. He said this, My people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Where are you on this right now? I don't need to know. God needs to know. Where are you on this? Are you starting to make little compromises in the faith that you once held to? Are you starting to make little decisions that you know displease God? That you know are ultimately going to destroy you and everyone around you? I would urge you this morning. I would urge you to pay attention to what God has said here in his word. You, if you do not turn around, you are going to end up like that dry bush in the desert one day. You're going to look around you and think to yourself, how in the world did I get here? How did my life become this? I'm telling you, folks. That's the path you're on right now. Oh, you might not see it now. It's just little things. It's just little compromises. It's just little lies. It's just little this and little that. Pay attention to what God is saying. He's not just issuing his warning to the people of Judah 2,600 years ago, but God tells us that all of his word is for our instruction, our correction. So open your heart and hear what he's saying this morning. So first we see the folly of trusting in man. And you know, we've heard a lot of this in our teaching through the Old Testament. I mean, I know, I know that it gets pretty old week after week hearing about sin and judgment. I understand that. But you know, there's another half of the Bible, if I can put it that way. The Bible is filled with so many beautiful promises of things that God longs to do in your life and in mine if we will let him. And here's one of those examples. So first of all, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Your life is going to end up like a dying bush in a desert, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because God offers something far better. And now we come to the second point, the blessing of trusting in God. The blessing of trusting in God. Verses 7 and 8. They say this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. How's his life going to turn out? For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters. Listen to this rich language compared to what we just read. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will it cease from bearing fruit. What a beautiful contrast this is. This is the picture of a person who delights in doing God's will. He finds life and joy and, and fullness and satisfaction in obeying God's word and following his commands. We so often fall into the trap of convincing ourselves that God's commands are so heavy they're so difficult. They're so burdensome. We read people saying that very thing in the Bible. 
Oh, God's commands are so heavy. So all this list of rules I have to keep, that's all religion is about. Folks, if you think that's what God is all about, you've been lied to in some church somewhere. That is not what God is about. God is not about keeping a list of religious rules. God has so much waiting for you that he wants to bless you with. And I'm not talking about health and wealth, prosperity gospel, not at all. God's blessings are far greater than that shallow nonsense. The God of heaven delights in you. He wants to bless your life. And here we see this tiny glimpse after months and months and months of sin and judgment. It's like the heavens open up for a moment and the light beams through. And God says, look, this is what I want to do for you. And he says that even in the harshest of seasons, or as this verse says, even when the heat comes, this person who trusts in the Lord will always be nourished. His life will still bear fruit because he's got the Lord to sustain him and to strengthen him. Even in the worst of times, even when sorrow comes, even when trials come, even when sickness comes, even when you experience loss, this person still knows the goodness of the Lord. When your world seems to be falling apart, those who trust in the Lord, those who put their hope in him will be like this vibrant tree full of life, putting its roots down into the river and just drinking up that water. I want you to see a visual of this, what God is talking about. I want you to look at that for just a second. That frail, dry bush in the desert is a, a picture of someone who's forsaken God and they're alone when trials come. But this healthy, vibrant tree is a picture of someone who will never be forsaken by God when hard times come. In fact, they'll be strengthened and enriched by it so much so that they'll be able to bear fruit that will bless and nourish the lives of others. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. It's amazing. Throughout Scripture, God gives us these two clear choices. One, one choice brings heartache and judgment. The other choice brings joy and blessing. Um, is it just me, or does this seem so obvious? You want to know how thick we are as human beings? At one point in the Old Testament... God said to his people, I, I'm setting before you this day life and death, blessings and curses. And then you know what he said to him? To the, to the people, he said, now choose life. What? what? That would be like me saying, would you like a glass of iced tea or would you like me to punch you in the face? I'll take the tea. I don't even drink tea, but that's great. I'll take some tea. The choice is obvious. And yet God says, life or death. These are your two choices. Now choose life. He's giving you the answer to the test. This is how stupid we are as human beings. We think of this choice God is giving. And it just seems so obvious to us. 
that one will turn your life into a dying shrub and the other choice will turn your life into a flourishing tree bearing fruit. How can we get this wrong? Why would anyone choose the path that would ultimately lead them to harm? Why? Well, let me make it a little more personal. Why do we so often choose the path that we know is going to harm us? Why do we do that? What's wrong with us? We must be off our rocker, as they used to say years ago overseas. Well, there is a reason why we're so prone to choosing the wrong things, even when we know the outcome will be tragic. And this brings us to point number three. This is the problem. This is the problem. Verse 9. This is the cause of it all right here. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, he's not just talking about other people. He's talking about you, and he's talking about me. The heart is deceitful above all things. Now, I, I tell you what, in my own supposed brilliance, I want to pause right here and go, well, that can't be true. You're telling me my heart is more deceitful than anything? That can't be right. And yet it is. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And here in this verse, we discover the problem. Our heart is that deadly tiger I mentioned a moment ago, waiting inside of all of us, lurking and waiting to pounce. It's our heart. Our heart is the problem. This phrase, deceitfully wicked, the heart is deceitfully wicked in this verse. It can also be rightly translated um, deceitfully sick or incurably sick. According to the Bible, you and I have something inside of us that is so sick, that is so wicked, that it deceives us far more often than all the people in the world combined could ever deceive us. It's more wicked than anything. It's more deceitful than anything. Our own heart deceives us. It lies to us. It deliberately leads us in the wrong direction. It deliberately tells us that something has value when it doesn't. It deliberately tells us that things are good and pure and right when they're not. Our own heart does that to us. Here's what Jesus said about the heart. We'll jump over to the New Testament for a moment. Matthew 15, 18. Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. It's no wonder that the writer of Proverbs fired a shot across our bow, a warning shot in Proverbs 4.23, when he said, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it 
flow the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. And this problem of the deceitfulness and wickedness of the heart affects all of us. It's not as though, and this is again another thing that we Christians are famous for or infamous for, it's not as though um, wicked people exist out there somewhere while we're, you know, the rest of us are here trying to get on with our lives. The sad reality is that wickedness exists inside all of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this, one of my favorite authors, um, you should read the Gulag Archipelago once every two or three years, and it'll take you two or three years to get through it. (laughs) Very difficult reading, but just life-changing powerful. He said this, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? What a question. This is why we all need a solution. This is why we all need a remedy to this problem. Because we're all affected by this sickness. You know, and at this point, it sounds like we've been left in a real mess. I mean, we're, we're stuck now with, with this deceitful, desperately sick heart that we can't trust because it lies to us and it leads us astray. What in the world are we supposed to do? Well, thankfully, in God's hands, even the most deceitful heart, even the sickest, the most wicked heart is not a lost cause. Our final point, number four, the solution, verse 10. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. It's important for us to understand what this is saying here. The fact is, only God knows the depths of the human heart in terms of its depravity and its deceitfulness. You and I are not fully capable of examining our own heart and rendering an accurate verdict. Why? Because our heart is a world champion at making excuses, at self-justification, at blaming others instead of accepting blame for ourselves. Our heart is dangerously good at putting on appearances, making itself look better than it really is. That's what our heart will do if we try to examine it. This is why we need God's x-ray, as it were, to look inside of us to see what our heart really is looks like. I try not to use this in too many illustrations. I think I've done good um, holding that back over the last year and a half, but if I didn't share this with you, I would be, um, I would just be crazy. 
because this is, you know, this, this is so obvious to me what I was doing. Um, it's laughable now, I suppose. Uh, you know, on January 23rd last year, I stood here, I preached the sermon. The last 10 or so minutes of the sermon, I started having trouble breathing. My chest felt really weird. I tried to cover it up the best I could and just finish the sermon so it wouldn't be a distraction. And then chatted with folks afterwards and then got in the car to leave. And it just you know, got worse and worse. And, and I said, I just want to go home and lay down. And Sandy said, no, you're going to the emergency room. I said, there is no way. There's no way. That's going to be eight hours and like two grand just for walking in the door. So I said, I'm not going. She said, yeah, you're going. I said, and men, you know, you know how this turns out, right? <laughs> uh, ladies, if you don't know this, you rule the world, by the way. I will just tell you. It's like the big tough guy who got married and, and uh, a few months into his marriage, he ran into some of his old friends and they said, hey, how's it going? He said, well, you know, marriage is all about making compromises to get along. And they said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'll give you an example. My wife wanted a cat. I didn't want a cat. So we compromised and got a cat. <laughs> That's how it works. So on the way home in that car ride, I compromised and went to the emergency place. Um, when I walked in, she was checking somebody else out, and they left. The lady seriously didn't even look up from what she was doing. She said, may I help you? And I said, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I'm having a hard time breathing. My chest feels really heavy. And she went, come with me. So if you ever want to cut the line, she took me straight back. And I mean, literally within 20 seconds, there were two nurses in there. And so they're coming in. All I want to do is go home. And so the whole time I'm cracking jokes, I'm trying to make light of everything. And I'm saying, look, I feel, I feel okay now. It's all fine. I was lying. I just, I just want to go home. Would that be all right? And they lay me down. They took my shirt off. They start sticking stuff all over me. They start running this test. And I'm, she said, sir, lay still and be quiet. And so I lay there, and I'm looking like this over at them, at their faces. You can tell a lot from people's faces. If you're ever on an airplane in a storm, watch, watch the flight attendant's faces. If they're panicked, you panic. <laughs> and so I was looking at their faces, and when this machine started spitting out the results, I saw this one nurse look up at the other one without saying a word like, oh boy. And I knew we were in... Serious territory. She bolted out of the room and within a few seconds came back in with the doctor. Now I start joking with the doctor, lying to the doctor. I'm sorry, your pastor lied to the doctor. And I said, uh, I said look, man, if, if I tell you I feel fine now, can I just go home? Uh, he looked at the paperwork, uh, the, the, uh, the results. Uh, he said, sir, you're not going home anytime soon. You're having a heart attack. Now, see, here's the thing. Here's, here's where I wanted to share that with you in light of what we're talking about today. I was trying to convince them that I was fine. But none of my attempts to convince them that I was fine worked. Why? Because they were able to see my heart. They were able to see past my lies into my heart. 
and they saw the real condition of my heart. And thank God they did. I was saying one thing on the outside, but they saw the truth on the inside. And if I'd not allowed them to look into my heart, the doctor said I would have died that day. Do you understand the seriousness of that in the physical realm, and yet how infinitely more serious our lies and our cover-ups are in the spiritual sense? When we say to God or to others who care about us, I'm fine. There's nothing going on in my heart. Everything's fine. And we play those games like I did, and we try to brush things off when other people who care about us come and speak into our life and go, hey, listen, you know, that thing you said back there, that's, that's not like you. What's going on? Something's going on with you. No, it's not. And we get defensive. Who do you think you are? I guess you're so perfect. And we play these silly games. We're hiding our heart. We're disguising our heart, not wanting for God or anyone else to look inside and see the real issues with us. This is exactly why you and I need God to examine our heart. Because no matter what we might say about ourselves, God alone sees our true condition, and he alone has the cure. It's no wonder David finally quit playing games, and he said in Psalm 139, 23, he finally turned to God and he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Listen, we are incapable of changing and repairing and healing our own heart. Siegfried and Roy actually believed that by training that tiger and changing his external behavior, that they were also changing the heart of that tiger. What they didn't realize until it was too late was that you might be able to change its outward behavior, but you can never change the beast inside. Well, I need to skip some of this for time's sake. Jump down, guys, on the slides, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 3. I want to Close it down quickly with this. <clears throat> when you and I were saved, God gave us a new heart. We see this in Jeremiah 31. Um, we see it in Ezekiel 11, I believe, and Ezekiel 36, where God says that the day is coming when he will remove our heart of stone. He will give us a new heart, a heart of flesh, upon which he will write his laws, and he will put a desire within us to follow his laws from that new heart. Now, if you've been saved, that has happened to you. He said he will put his spirit in you. That has happened if you are saved, but here's the problem. Even though you've been saved, the deceitfulness of your human heart still remains. And so this is why the New Testament again and again even gives warnings to believers, to Christians, about things like this. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Beware brothers. That term is never once used in the Bible referring to unbelievers. So it's clear who he's speaking to. Beware brothers, lest there be any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil, 
unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What? He's talking to church members, so to speak. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hey, believers, that's a warning for you. You and I can't coast through this life just because we've been saved. Paul referred to this again and again. He said things like this in Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with, with Christ. What's part of your responsibility now? Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. This is why the Apostle Paul said, There is a war taking place within me. Read the end of Romans chapter 7 sometime. If you ever feel discouraged about your battle with sin, read Romans 7. Oh, it's such an encouragement to see this mighty man of God. The Apostle Paul say, listen, man, the things I want to do for Christ, I never seem to do. Anybody there? The things I don't want to do, I always seem to do. Anybody experience that? We all do. There is a war going on inside of us between what our rotten flesh wants us to do and what the Spirit of God in us wants us to do. And as long as we're in these physical bodies, we'll be in a lifelong process of sanctification where the more we yield ourselves to God, the more we will become like him. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you see that? That's beautiful. This is the Christian life. We're not saved and then fixed forever. Our soul is fixed forever. Sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteed for eternity. But our body, our body and our mind and our, our old human heart will fight us every step of the way. That war that you face every day as a Christian, that you think, man, why am I like this? Why in the world? Uh, Pastor Phil never sins. Y'all think that ever? Probably, probably not. But you get discouraged and you go, well, why, do I, why do I act like this? What is wrong with me? I thought I was saved. Yeah, you are. You're in a battle now. You're in a war against all your old vices, all your old thoughts, habits, lusts, desires, passions, pursuits. And it's a fight every day. You may be saved, but the choice is still ours. This choice that God talked about here in Jeremiah 17. Follow me, trust in me, or put your trust in man. And these are the two outcomes. Even if you're saved, you still have that choice to make every day. So are we going to follow our heart and go wherever it leads? Or are we going to follow God and lead our heart in that direction? So let me ask you as I close, when's the last time that you came humbly to God and asked him to give you a spiritual EKG? When's the last time? Ever? What is going on in your life right now that is bringing you agonizing unrest? Why are, you, why are you willing to live with that another day? 
Come to God today. Lay yourself on the table and say, God, look into my heart. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm harboring resentment or unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, deceit. Show me, God, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to be that shrub in the desert. I want to be that tree blooming with life, bearing fruit, exalting your name, and blessing the lives of those around me. You can begin that path today. Let's pray. Jeremiah closes this section out by saying, Heal me, O Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Some of you need to pray that prayer right now. Heal me, O Lord. Heal me. Lord, I've been covering up my heart. I've been covering up and trying to pretend like I'm okay, and I am not okay in your eyes. I know that. Lord, I invite you now. I invite you to come and bring your spiritual x-ray. Search my heart. Heal me. Save me from this path I'm on, God. Bring me back to you today. If that's you, oh, I encourage you. I encourage you not to leave this place without settling that issue today. I will be at the back if I can help you in any way. We have ladies at the back who are ready as well to pray with you. Father, plant this word deep in our heart. Change us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart. of my heart.